Hello, and welcome to the Nauticast podcast, the one true chapter-by-chapter podcast going through a song of ice and fire. I'm one of your hosts, Emmett, also known as Pork Winton. And I'm your other host, Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. And welcome to the 206th episode of the Nauticast, titled End of a Century, an analysis of A Storm of Swords, Tyrion 7, and Sansa 4, in which Tyrion and Sansa, first separately and then together, prepare for the most terrifying challenge of their lives, Joffrey getting married. The most terrifying challenge of their lives so far. Check in with them towards the end of the book. We might have a couple new contenders. So yes, we're doing two chapters together today. We do that occasionally when chapters are, are short or just make most sense put together. Tyrion 7 and Sansa 4 are good chapters, but short chapters kind of ramping up the Purple Wedding for both of these characters before the event everyone's waiting for, Joffrey's death, happens in Tyrion 8, which we'll be doing on its own in our next episode. So our spoiler warning, as always, prepare to be spoiled for the five A Song of Ice and Fire novels, the three Duncan Egg novellas, any histories, interviews, Winds of Winter sample chapters, as well as Game of Thrones and House of the Dragon, the TV shows. Anything and everything. Our question this episode comes from one of our patrons, Ethan, who asked a bunch of great questions. We'll be answering in some uh, different episodes so we can give each one the attention it deserves. But we're going to start with this one. Which do you like better? The Lannisters send their regards or Jamie Lannister sends his regards? What are the pros and cons of both? So, of course, Jamie Lannister sends his regards is what Roose Bolton says before he stabs Robb Stark in his heart in the books. And the Lannisters send the regards is what Roose Bolton says before he stabs Robb Stark in the heart in the show. So uh, what do you think of those two? I think I think we both probably have the same preference. But uh, what is what do you think of the pros and cons of each of those? Uh, let's start with the show here. Let's go with the Lannisters send their regards. And with the caveat that this is not directed at the audience listening to this podcast... I understand that the TV viewing audience can occasionally be idiotic. So I can see the reason the show changed it to the Lannisters send the regards because a lot of people might have thought, wait, did I meet, miss some parlay between Roos and Jamie when they were in Harrenhal? So I think it just kind of made it a little clearer and as opposed, whatever. I think everyone gets <laughs> what I'm saying with it. It just kind of spells it out a little more clearly for the viewer. So there's a little less ambiguity about exactly who Roos Bolton is really taking orders from. That said, the line really does not matter unless you include Lady Stoneheart. Um, it really doesn't matter. And the whole thing is building towards that showdown with Jamie and Brienne and Stoneheart that we're waiting for following the events of A Feast for Crows and A Dance with Dragons. I think Jamie Lannister sends his regards is just more delicious. It's Roos being more chaotic. Um, I, I think it's beautiful. <laughs> well, beautiful in its own way. Um, and I think that's just the more effective one. And it actually serves a purpose, which I don't think everything has to serve a purpose in the story, but it felt like in the show they had the line because they know it's an iconic line and they got to include it in there, but it didn't really have any resonance or permanence the way that it appears to have so far in the story in the books. Totally agreed. I think the last thing you want is for your audience in this moment to be going, huh, wait, what? Like they definitely wanted to avoid that with their show audience. They wanted them to be focused emotionally on what was happening. And you, you're also, you also have to work overtime, I think, to keep people's knowledge of who Bruce Bolton is at the front of their minds. That's why he kept, you know, they kept kind of cutting to him a lot in season three, just so we never forget who this guy is, especially because he doesn't have as outlandish personality as he does in the books, which is also why in the books, Jamie Lannister sends his regards is so great because Roose doesn't know that Catelyn is going to come back and seize on that. Roose is just saying that because it's awesome, and it is. <laughs> and it doesn't mean anything to anyone but him, because no one else knows that Jamie said that. Like, it's not like Walter Frey's going, good one, Roose. <laughs> like, he has no clue. That's just for Roose, which is amazing. 
Uh, so it's that is like a self-contained glory. But you're yeah, you're also totally right that the the point of that in the story is that is that Catalin with all you know we, from what we can tell the Stoneheart the Red Wedding is mostly what she remembers. So she's going to be seizing on that. And the great irony of that is actually no, this isn't Jamie's fault at all. Bruce was just being a dick, and Jamie had no knowledge of what was coming there. The worst he knew is we we were covering in those chapters is that Bruce was up to something. And I I love the the perversity of. Brienne's last chapter in Feast when she's being put on trial by the Brotherhood and the Brotherhood are like you expect us to believe that Jamie Lannister sent you off with a Lannister sword, Lannister sword to protect Sansa Stark who he thinks killed Joffrey and Brienne has to be like yeah I know that doesn't make any sense and it only makes sense to us because we have Jamie and Brienne chapters so I like I like that idea that Jamie's going to have to answer for this even though he didn't actually do it what could be more Jamie than that so with all of that there the line is much better in the books but yeah without it it's just it, <laughs> It gives Bruce something to say also because I guess it would just look kind of anticlimactic if he just walked up and went poke. <laughs> it would be funny. Yeah, you got to give him. <laughs> That's how we remember it. Bruce just pokes him and keeps walking. So uh, thank you so much to Ethan for the question. If you want to ask us questions, we are forced forced to answer here on the Nauticast podcast. Head on over to patreon.com slash Nauticast A-S-O-I-A-F where patrons get to ask us questions at the $10 and above tier and uh, other benefits, including exclusive episodes every month and early access to our regular A Song of Ice and Fire episodes. And speaking of A Song of Ice and Fire, we're here to, te- here to cover two whole chapters today. So no more time wasted. Let's jump into A Storm of Swords, Tyrion 7 and Sansa 4. Tyrion quietly gets dressed as Sansa dreams in their bed. She mumbles something, but he can't tell what it is, which is nothing new in their marriage. Sansa keeps everything to herself, even, or maybe especially, her grief for Rob and Catelyn after Tyrion broke the news about the Red Wedding. Tyrion wants to comfort her, but he knows that he'd only make it worse. The most he could do was to shield her from the uglier details of the Red Wedding as they came down from the twins. Sansa did not need to hear how her brother's body had been hacked and mutilated, he decided, nor how her mother's corpse had been dumped naked into the Green Fork in a savage mockery of House Tully's funeral customs. The last thing the girl needed was more fodder for her nightmares. Oh, Sansa didn't need to hear that, but we did. Thanks a lot, Tyrion. I have nightmares too, you know. Tyrion knows that Sansa doesn't feel safe around him, and he knows that she's right to feel that way. But that doesn't make him feel better about the way she looks at him. Her only oasis is the godswood. Tyrion wonders if she's praying for death at this point, after everything that's happened to her and her family. Winter is coming, warned the stark words, and truly it had come for them with a vengeance. But it is high summer for House Lannister, so why am I so bloody cold? Well, probably because it's the middle of the night and you're still half naked. No, no, I get it, it's a metaphor. If nothing else, Tyrion's sham marriage has given him the excuse to move into swankier apartments above the kitchen. Ooh, my kind of place. Tyrion's just happy to be farther away from Cersei, although Shay isn't exactly thrilled to be sharing a room with Sansa's other maid, Brella, who snores louder than Sansa. Speaking of Shay, she's waiting for Tyrion below the castle, down with the dragon skulls. I thought my lord had forgotten me. Her dress was draped over a black tooth near as tall as she was, and she stood within the dragon's jaws, nude. Valerian, he thought. Or was it Vagar? One dragon skull looked much like another. And here I thought Tyrion was into dragon history. What a fake fan. Shay teases Tyrion to get him to chase her, which he does, catching up only when she lets him. After sex, Tyrion says they should hurry back before Sansa wakes up. Shay says eh, they should just drug her. That's what they did with Lawless. Well, King's Landing seems... Fun. I can't wait till Sansa gets out of here. Not that Littlefinger's any better. Shay keeps flirting with Tyrion, but he's too anxious about literally everything and everyone, including his own face after the wound he took on the Blackwater. 
And anyway, he has trouble believing any of Shay's compliments, knowing that he's paying for them. Tyrion is also stressed about keeping Shay safe. Varys arranged for her to become Sansa's maid, but warned to Tyrion that Shay's cover story won't hold up to Cersei's scrutiny, and that he, Varys, won't lie to Cersei about that. Tyrion correctly points out that Varys has lied to Cersei countless times about all sorts of shit, as with everyone else, because he's Varys, that's his job. Varys pretends that he has feelings and that they're hurt for a while, but he also points out that he has to work for Cersei too, or she'll just have him killed. Pardon me if I do not weep for you. I shall, but you must pardon me if I do not weep for Shay. I confess I do not understand what there is in her to make a clever man like you act such a fool. You might, if you were not a eunuch. Is that the way of it? A man may have wits or a bit of meat between his legs, but not both? Varus tittered. Perhaps I should be grateful I was cut, then. Tyrion has to admit that Varus has a point. Now that his fuck fog has finally faded, he's feeling pretty shitty about everything he is doing and risking. He tells himself that he shouldn't feel bad. Sansa couldn't be less interested in him if she tried. For a minute, Tyrion considers just telling Sansa about Shay. He's not the first man to have a mistress, true. And even Sansa's own honorable dad, good old dead Ned, father to bastard, false. But Tyrion doesn't think he can trust Sansa to keep the secret. The smarter move would be setting up Shay at Shatai's brothel. Or just marrying her off to someone else. Bronn, maybe? Ooh, now there's a power couple. Then there's the hedge knight Sir Talad, who's tall and strong and basically everything Tyrion isn't. Shay interrupts Tyrion's spiral into self-loathing, asking if she's displeased him. Quite the opposite, he says, and that's the problem. Tyrion knows deep down that he'll never bring himself to send her away, no matter what Varys and his own conscience tell him. Tyrion suddenly realizes he can see Shay, meaning that the sun is rising. A new day, a new year, a new century. I survived the Green Fork in the Blackwater, I can bloody well survive King Joffrey's wedding. Well, I hope so, Tyrion, it's more than King Joffrey himself can do. Shay calls Tyrion her giant of Lannister and says she loves him. Tyrion only thinks that he loves her, planning once more to marry her off to Sir Talad, so much kinder than Tyrion, and taller. Meanwhile, Sansa wakes up from the dream Tyrion saw her having earlier. Unsurprisingly, it was about her family. Her father, her brothers, even her wolf, remember her? All running happily through the godswood of Winterfell. If only dreaming could make it so. She threw back the coverlets. I must be brave. Her torments would soon be ended, one way or the other. If Lady was here, I would not be afraid. Lady was dead, though. Rob, Bran, Rickon, Arya, her father, her mother, even Septa Mordain. All of them are dead but me. Fact check, only half true about all the death, but Sansa is right that she's alone right now. Tyrion has already slipped out, and she's used to that. Sometimes he's reading, sometimes he's eating, sometimes he's just walking around. Yeah, and sometimes he's fucking inside Dragon Skulls. Very busy schedule for Tyrion these days. Sansa moves to the window and stares up at the clouds. They look like two castles, their colors changing in the light before the wind blows them together into a single castle. Sometimes the gods work in mysterious ways, and sometimes they just spill shit out right in your face. Shay and Brella come in to fill Sansa's bath, and Sansa shows off the castle in the sky. <laughs> Miyazaki's gonna sue. Shay says she'd love to see a castle made of gold. If only she'd made it to Casterly Rock. Sansa thinks that Shay works hard, but sometimes looks at her insolently. Sansa, you don't know the half of it. Or the quarter of it? Nah, doesn't have the same ring to it. Brella says that the cloud castle looks like it's crumbling. Sansa doesn't want to hear about ruined castles, can't imagine why, and she asks after Tyrion. Brella hasn't seen him. Shay says he could have gone off to see Tywin, who might need Tyrion's advice. That's optimistic. Tywin will literally die before he asks Tyrion for advice. 
As Sansa takes her bath, she considers sipping a little wine to take the edge off what is sure to be a long, annoying day of celebrating Joffrey. The wedding itself will be at noon, and the feast will be at night in the throne room. But first, Sansa has to get through brunch in the Queen's ballroom, and that is not the kind of thing you want to be sober for. Speaking of which, Tyrion shows up with Pod and immediately starts getting drunk. There will be wine at the breakfast, my lord, Sansa said. There's wine here. You don't expect me to face my sister sober, surely? It's a new century, my lady. The 300th year since Aegon's conquest. The dwarf took a cup of red from Podrick and raised it high. To Aegon! What a fortunate fellow. Two sisters, two wives, and three big dragons. What more could a man ask for? Well, let's see, Tyrion. You've had two wives, now. You're about to be hanging out with dragons, and you've only had one sister, but that's hardly your fault. It looks like you're measuring up just fine. Sansa can't help but notice that her valiant lord husband looks like he just crawled out of a dumpster. She politely asks if he'd like to change. Tyrion impolitely negs himself for a while before pulling on some marginally less sweaty and wine-stained clothes. Pod is looking good too, aside from an unfortunate zit. You gotta go see Pycelle for some acne cream. Definitely don't go see Kyburn. I would not put any cream Kyburn gives me on my face. He is such a timid boy. Sansa had been wary of Tyrion's squire at first. He was a pain, cousin to Sir Illin Payne, who had taken her father's head off. However, she'd soon come to realize that Pod was as frightened of her as she was of his cousin. Whenever she spoke to him, he turned to the most alarming shade of red. Are purple, gold, and white the colors of House Payne, Podrick? She asked him politely. No, I, I mean yes, he blushed. The colors, our, our arms are purple and white, my lady, with, with gold coins in the checks. Purple and white. Both. He studied her feet. There's a tale behind those coins, said Tyrion. No doubt Pod will confide it to your toes one day. Oh, leave him alone, Tyrion. It is hard work being literally the only sober person in the castle. Sansa considers pretending she has her period to get out of this, but she tells herself she has to be brave like Rob. She's going to need that courage to face down the sheer amount of food she will be expected to eat today, starting with a big breakfast in the Queen's Ballroom. Sansa nibbles around the edges of every course like the tiny cartoon mouse that she is, while Tyrion once more focuses on getting as wasted as physically possible. Joffrey keeps glancing over at Sansa and making her nervous. Thankfully, he gets interrupted by Cersei, who gives him what's left of the White's Cloak worn by her and her mother Joanna of Sainted Memory. Everyone else starts bringing over their gifts for Joffrey, who, yeah, totally needs more things. From Jalabar Joe, Joffrey received a great bow of golden wood and quiver of long arrows fletched with green and scarlet feathers. From Lady Tanda, a pair of supple riding boots. From Sir Kevon, a magnificent red leather jousting saddle. A red gold brooch wrought in the shape of a scorpion from the Dornishman Prince Oberyn. Silver spurs from Sir Adam Marbrand. A red silk tourney pavilion from Lord Mathis Rowan. Lord Paxter Redwine brought forth a beautiful wooden model of the war galley of 200 oars being built even now on the arbor. If it please your grace, she will be called King Joffrey's Valor, he said. And Joff allowed that he was very pleased indeed. I will make it my flagship when I sail to Dragonstone to kill my traitor Uncle Stannis, he said. You better start sailing now then, kid. You have hours to live. All of Joffrey's gratitude vanishes when Tyrion presents his gift, a gorgeous copy of the book Lives of Four Kings. Kevon says it's a book every king should read, but Joffrey says his dad never had any time for books, which is more right than he knows. Joffrey says that Tyrion would have impregnated Sansa by now if he didn't spend so much time reading. Well, I don't know, Tyrion buries himself in more than books, just ask Shay. Tyrion ignores Joffrey and keeps getting drunk. Speaking of which, Mace Tyrell gives Joffrey the wine cup to end all wine cups, a gigantic golden chalice with seven sides. Seven faces for your grace's seven kingdoms, the bride's father explained. He showed them how each face bore the sigil of one of the great houses. Ruby Lion, Emerald Rose, Onyx Stag, 
Silver Trout, Blue Jade Falcon, Opal Sun, and Pearl Direwolf. A splendid cup, said Joffrey, but we'll need to chip the wolf off and put a squid in its place, I think. Well, technically, Joffrey, the Iron Islands already are one of the Seven Kingdoms. They ran the Riverlands when Aegon the Conqueror showed up, so the Tully Trout technically shouldn't be there at all. Uh, I'm being told that Joffrey has ordered me killed to shut me up. Thanks for listening, everyone. Finally, Tywin shows off his gift to Joffrey. A sword in a beautiful scabbard, but the sword, which may sound familiar, is even prettier, with red and black ripples shining in the sun. Everyone starts praising Joff's new dick. Sansa wonders if he'll make Marjorie kiss this one like he made Sansa kiss the last one. And before that, of course, there was the one Arya castrated and threw into the river. We can't forget about that. Joffrey finally settles on Widow's Whale as a name, saying he will split Lightbringer in two with it. Again, Joffrey, you are sadly out of time to kill Stannis, but don't worry. I don't think Lightbringer's going to last forever either. Joffrey starts waving his new sword around, nearly killing his own Kingsguard knight, Balin Swan. Have a care, your grace, Sir Adam Marbrand warned the king. Valyrian steel is perilously sharp. I remember. Joffrey brought Widow's Whale down in a savage, two-handed slice, onto the book that Tyrion had given him. The heavy leather cover parted at a stroke. Sharp! I told you, I am no stranger to Valyrian steel. He did it! He said the thing! <laughs> eh, what a maroon! Sansa can tell that Tyrion is pissed off, but it's not just about the book. When Joffrey says that Tyrion and Sansa owe him a new present, Tyrion offers a knife to match the sword. Maybe with a dragonbone hilt? Hmm, why does that sound so familiar? Joffrey flinches for a second, but then snaps back to his normal personality, asking for a gold hilt with rubies in it instead. Such, such subtle, classy taste the boy king has. Tyrion keeps drinking until it's time to leave. As they walk, Oberyn catches up with them. Sansa side-eyes Ilaria Sand, noting that she doesn't seem to feel any shame about her social status as a bastard who is mother to more bastards. Yeah, how dare she not hate herself? Shay told Sansa that Ilaria has risen high despite her humble origins. I can't imagine what Shay might be thinking about there. If only this was Dorne, sorry, the Lannisters, they're kind of all about shame. Oberyn tells Tyrion that he got to see another version of Lives of Four Kings while he was auditing a couple classes at the Citadel. Oberyn loved the drawings, but he thinks the author gave too much credit to King Viserys. No, not Danny's brother, and no, not Paddy Considine. This is the second King Viserys, Rhaenyra's tiniest child from House of the Dragon. Tyrion has the exact opposite opinion. Viserys II never gets enough credit. Oberyn responds that Viserys poisoned his nephew Baylor the Blessed, and that his reign was too short to matter anyway. He was the William Henry Harrison of Westeros. But Tyrion argues that Baylor killed himself by refusing to eat and that while Viserys might have technically only been king for a year, he ruled as hand while his nephews Daron and Baelor fucked around and found out with war and religion respectively. Plus, Tyrion says even if Viserys had poisoned Baelor, that might have been better than letting Baelor live and continue to screw everything up. Sansa was shocked. But Baelor the Blessed was a great king. He walked the Boneway barefoot to make peace with Dorne, and rescued the Dragon Knight from a snake pit. The Vipers refused to strike him because he was so pure and holy. Prince Oberyn smiled. If you were a viper, my lady, would you want to bite a bloodless stick like Baylor the Blessed? I'd sooner save my fangs for someone juicier. My prince is playing with you, Lady Sansa, said the woman Alaria Sand. The septons and singers like to say that the snakes did not bite Baylor, but the truth is very different. He was bitten half a hundred times and should have died from it. If he had, Viserys would have reigned a dozen years, said Tyrion, and the Seven Kingdoms might have been better served. Some believe Baylor was deranged by all that venom. Yes, said Prince Oberyn, but I've seen no snakes in this red keep of yours. So how do you account for Joffrey? Oh, Prince Oberyn, I can answer that one. <laughs> I'm going to go with two parts incest to one part neglect. No venom required. 
Tyrion and Sansa ride away in their litter. She forces herself to apologize for Joffrey destroying their gift. Tyrion says that Joffrey only ruined his own chance to learn something for once. Tyrion starts asking Sansa about what exactly went down at Winterfell near the start of the story, you know, 10,000 years ago. Joffrey didn't get along with Rob, Tyrion recalls. What about Bran? Sansa's confused by the question, but says that everyone loved Bran. How could you not, the bratty little squirrel? Tyrion just stares Sansa down, making her more nervous than she already was, which was a lot. You loved your brothers, much as I loved Jaime. Is this some Lannister trap to make me speak treason? My brothers were traitors, and they've gone to traitors' graves. It is treason to love a traitor. Her little husband snorted. Rob rose in arms against his rightful king. By law, that made him a traitor. The others died too young to know what treason was. Well, not yet they haven't. Maybe Rickon will make it just old enough. Tyrion asks if Sansa knows what happened to Bran. She thinks he's asking about the fall or about Theon killing him. He's not, but he stops short of explaining, saying only that he has never meant any harm to any Stark, including her. Sansa says, that's good, because what the hell else is she going to say? All she can do is wonder what he wants from her. You have never asked me how Rob died, or your lady mother. I would sooner not know. It would give me bad dreams. Then I will say no more. That, that's kind of you. Oh yes, said Tyrion, I am the very soul of kindness. And I know about bad dreams. And that is the synopsis, synopses for A Storm of Swords, Tyrion 7 and Sansa 4. What did you think of these two, sir? Well, we're on the short jaunt to the Purple Wedding now, a sort of speedrun version of the Red Wedding. This doesn't take place over an act of this book, and our main point of views don't have to cross the Riverlands to get to it. The Purple Wedding is the Red Wedding writ small, even if it is a more extravagant event. But we're not quite there yet. This is just the warm-up. Instead of chapters of Catelyn's despair and Arya's flickering hope, Tyrion and Sansa prime us for what's about to go down by putting us in the heads of the two people who hate Joffrey the most. It recenters a major antagonist while setting the two point of views into motion for their explosive ends in A Storm of Swords. Oh, and it answers a mystery posed in early A Game of Thrones, which I'm sure we will be talking about. The chapters are a bit functional at times, reveling in the last few moments that Tyrion and Sansa experience as King's Landing residents, the last stretch of this stage of their lives, which we the reader have been locked into for over a book and a half. Yeah, functional is the right word. These chapters are the connective tissue between the Red Wedding and the Purple Wedding, and so this is probably the least interesting part of Act 3 of A Storm of Swords, but that's a high bar given how awesome literally every chapter after this is, and George still does a great job immersing us in King's Landing, which is our setting for five chapters in a row. These two, then we get Tyrion with Joffrey dying, Sansa where she escapes with Dantos and Littlefinger, and then Jamie's showing back up to be like, hey, what did I miss? <laughs> what stands out to me on reread is how the personal reflects the political. The Purple Wedding is all about the surface appearance of peace and plenty giving way to the violent grievances lurking just underneath. That dynamic is taking place in the big picture, as the Lannister, Tyrell, and Martell factions circle uneasily around each other, but it's also there on the character level. Tyrion is pretending to be a content member of the royal family, when in reality he's having an affair with his wife's maid and has to get falling down drunk to even face his relatives. Sansa is pretending to be a loyal and loving Lannister wife, when in reality she is grieving yet again for her family and can't bring herself to share any of her feelings with her husband. Even before Joffrey starts choking, it's clear that something is rotten in the state of King's Landing. Joffrey's death is just the moment it becomes impossible for anyone to put on a brave face about it. Tyrion channels his inner goth kid, dressing himself in darkness as the chapter sets out. 
I get it, kid. I wore a lot of black in my moody youth as well. (laughs) Same. In a way, I'm of two minds about these chapters. On one hand, I do feel some of the stuff with Shay and the dagger are perfunctory. Certain beats George needs to hit before the purple wedding scuttles the battleship that is King's Landing. But on the other hand, I do appreciate seeing the last morning in which Tyrion and Sansa wake up to before their lives are blown apart. Tyrion's next night of sleep will be in a cell. Sansa's somewhere that isn't King's Landing for the first time in a long, long time. So for George to ground us initially in that mundanity, just another day sort of point of view chapter, really gets us emotionally where we need to be when Joffrey drinks from his chalice. As with the Red Wedding, George doesn't want to tip his hand about what's going to happen next. With the Red Wedding, he set up this future plot point of Rob's strategy to take Moat Kaelin, fight the Ironborn. The first time Reader is ready for that to happen, and so is shocked when Rob's story instead ends violently at the Twins. The Purple Wedding works a little differently because there is no red herring event we're led to believe is coming next. Quite the opposite. The Lannisters are framing this event as the end of history. It's the dawn of a new era in which they're going to rule forever. New day, new year, new century, as Tyrion says. We're rebooting the whole damn story. So instead, George tricks us with, like you said, how mundane these chapters are. He lulls you into these familiar dynamics, and then upends them. It's not surprising that Joffrey is antagonizing Tyrion and Sansa, because he always does that, that's his favorite thing. What's surprising is that he's the one who ends up suffering. Reading these chapters for the first time, you would never expect that. These chapters play their part in that structure, giving us a slice of life, like you said, getting our bearings again so the rug can be pulled out from under us. To that end, these chapters tied together nicely in their beginnings, with Tyrion wondering upon Sansa's dreams, the very same dream Sansa will think about when her chapter begins. In a way, this is almost the most intimate moment of their relationship, perhaps only matched by the rest of the day where both feel the same amount of revulsion at the king. But as we know, there is very little intimacy of any kind here. As Tyrion says, she hoards her tears and dreams to herself. When told about the Red Wedding, Sansa apparently gave the most Stannis-like non-reaction to it, only to shed her tears later when a large wooden door stood between the unhappy couple. We get further confirmation of the mutilation and defilement of Rob and Catelyn Stark in quite gory detail. As we've called out before, we do have to register this level of exceptional violence. It is not normal, even by the brutal standards of medieval war, or any war, to do this sort of thing. In theory, though not often in practice, the goal is to beat the enemy in the field to force them to make peace, and concessions are made in accordance with martial outcomes. Tywin Lannister already sticks out from this pack, beating his opponents to annihilation, as seen with the Reigns and Tarbacks and, as far as he knows, the Starks. This was generally not how feudal lords in, say, Western Europe engaged with each other, though it was how they engaged with peoples of their colonial possessions, such as the indigenous tribes of North America, Africa, and South and Southeast Asia. In spite of the rat cook lessons from Bran's last chapter, I do think the key moral takeaway of the Red Wedding was the outright butchery, even if the violation of guest right is more important in George's narrative calculus. Which the phrase end up learning the hard way, as lampooning <laughs> Tully funeral rites and tossing Catelyn's body into the river is one of George's big fuck-around moments that will set up the big find-out moment in the Storm epilogue. Oh yeah. At some level, I do think Tyrion understands how fucked everything is, as made clear in his ominous lines about winter having come for House Stark, but why does it feel so cold for his side, the winning side? The winds of winter are about to blow into our narrative, sadly not our bookstores, and we'll see how the pack of lions manage as compared to our lovable wolf pack. 
Which gets me to a moment I find ironically funny, whether intentionally or not. Of course, at a big family and royal wedding, Tyrion Lannister is expected to don his family colors. But it just tickles me that after listing some of the horrors plotted by the Lannisters, from the Red Wedding to blindsiding Sansa with marriage, he just happily dons the family colors, styling himself with a lion's brooch. I think back to Tyrion V with Oberyn, where the latter made the case that Tyrion's enemies may in fact be his own family, and his friends those outside of it. In a very real way, family is the figurative cage this little lion is stuck in, and by the end of the day, it will be his family putting him into a literal cage under allegations of regicide. Sad thing too, because Tyrion finally upgraded in real estate, moving into a nicer condo in the kitchen keep, where he has more space, a lower HOA, coffee and groceries (laughs) within walking distance, and even Pod gets to live in their little... Pod. This would have all the makings of a sitcom, if not for, you know, the oppressive sadness that weighs on Tyrion and Sansa at all times. If not for the suicidal thoughts, we'd have all the laughs. And like I said, the personal and the political situations mirror each other here. On the surface, as Tyrion will get into more next time, it looks like the Lannisters have pretty much won the war. It's high summer for us. And on the surface, it looks like Tyrion's life has gotten a lot better lately, too. He's got swanky new apartments, he got Shay a new job, but we have Tyrion's POV. And we know he's a miserable ball of stress and anxiety. His marriage is somehow more fake than ever after the Red Wedding. That which won the war for the Lannisters poisoned this relationship even further. His only outlet is those stolen moments with Shay, And as we see in this chapter, those come with their own wave of shame and self-loathing. The political victory is similarly fragile. Ironically, and I, I love this, it's not even Joffrey's death itself that brings the House of Cards down. Because Joffrey doesn't actually matter in the big picture. He can easily be replaced by Tommen as far as everyone's interests are concerned. Joffrey's death is just the spark that lights the kindling. Cersei blames Tyrion, and then Oberyn takes advantage of the situation to publicly litigate the Lannisters' crimes against his family, and then Tyrion kills Tywin. And without Tywin, the glorious eternal regime is suddenly on the brink of collapse. All those tensions are already present here, both the bad history between factions and the bad blood between individuals. All it takes is one thing going wrong for them all to break the surface. And that's why it works that Tyrion's thoughts dwell here on the atrocities of the Red Wedding, even as he's like in his nice apartments and hanging out with his wife and having a bunch of wine. Still, those those atrocities resonate for him. That's what his life is starting to feel like emotionally, even if it doesn't look like that, or at least not yet. Not yet being the key term there. <laughs> exactly. Give it a day. <laughs> Literally. Tyrion rendezvous with Shay in the jaws of a dragon skull, perhaps foreshadowing that the second act of Tyrion's story will see him traveling into the dragon's maw. He thinks it's Balerion's skull, but then wonders if it is Vagar. Maybe the lesson is, as shown in House of the Dragon Season 1, that you can name and humanize your flying nuclear bomb, but to the people in the literal fire, a dragon is a dragon and it's stupid to think otherwise. And while Shay will teach Tyrion to save her from the dragon's jaws, it will be the lion's jaws, or the lion's jawses, that doom her in the book's end. I love, I love the Jaws sequel, Jawses. That's my favorite <laughs> sequel ever. Uh, it also made me think of Catelyn looking at Ned's bones when they show up uh, at River Run, and thinking that she wouldn't know they were his if she hadn't been told they were. Same with dragons. None of the individuality persists in the, in the bones. It was, it was in the flesh. It was in the fire and the blood. After all, I think the same is true about the names we give we give any pets, not even the fire-breathing kind. It, it says more about us than it does about them, and especially cats, they get along just fine without them. 
This is one of the parts of the story that I personally feel is perfunctory, and that I understand we need to see Tyrion and Shay interact one last time. In fact, this is the first time Shay has appeared in a Tyrion chapter since I came on board. Seeing the two of them in action, sexy action no less, <laughs> one last time theoretically heightens the anguish we will feel at the trial, though I don't think that resonates with me as much as some of George's other setup work. Some of that has to do with the writing of Shay, who's a hard character for me to really pin down on the page. Despite some odd writing choices by the show, I do feel Sybil Kakeli put something on screen that was more compelling than what's in the books. Maybe I'll be able to pin down exactly my feelings as we progress through this book, and I will give all this material a more critical pass. Nah, I'm with you. This, this just isn't an especially interesting relationship. It never really changes from scene to scene, and the actual writing is some of George's clunkiest, as he just kind of laboriously spells out all of Tyrion's thoughts. Compare it to John and Egret, the relationship that recently uh, wrapped up, let's say. It's genuinely romantic, with obstacles to happiness that continually raise the stakes and heighten the tension. And there's always ambiguity between the two of them. There's always words left unsaid. And that's just not the case here. And I agree they were trying to do something different in the show. The problem is it was never really clear what that was, and then suddenly it was too late. Because <laughs> you still have to have that ending. Mm -hmm. And I wouldn't want to just get rid of these scenes between Tyrion and Shay in the books. Because Tyrion finding and killing Shay in Tywin's bed right after learning that Tywin lied about Taisha, is the cornerstone moment of Tyrion's character arc. You can't, that's like pulling the, the bottom Jenga out. Just the whole tower is going to go down. You can't, you can't get rid of that. But the relationship never transcends that story function. Shay just kind of has to be there for that moment to happen. And these scenes often feel like they're marking time until that happens. At least this one shakes it up with the backdrop of the dragon skulls. Shay naked in the dragon jaws is, yeah, that's, that's an incredible image. One that resonates across the series as a whole, but especially Tyrion's story, where eroticism and horrible, horrible violence are never far away from each other. When Shay asks Tyrion what troubles him, he repeats a laundry list of complaints that he's carried the last couple <laughs> chapters. The Dornish, his father, his wife, the small council, his sister, etc., etc., etc. Last time on Tyrion Lannister. <laughs> when I say this is the last day of Tyrion's life in King's Landing, it's literally these nagging concerns he's carried which, which will all fall away following the wedding. Or rather, will transform and mutate into a whole different type of concern than before. Concerns that could end up putting his head on a spike adorning the Red Keep. Now that's the perfect way of putting it. None of these concerns vanish after Joffrey's death. They all just get worse, because Joffrey's death is weaponized. Even by Oberyn, the person ostensibly trying to help Tyrion. When we get to Tyrion's trial, we will see how every enemy he made while he was in power is only too happy to help Cersei frame him. Including, well, especially Pycelle, who, he meant, who Tyrion mentions here. In this chapter, Tyrion's complaints are played for a joke. It's funny how many aggravations he has and how little he can ultimately do about any of them. But it gets a lot more serious when Tyrion's life is on the line. And by the time he winds up in the Black Cells, he'll be wishing he was back in the Kitchen Keep and that the worst he had to do was sneak around a little bit. <laughs> Varys helped Tyrion set up Shay's new station serving Sansa, but Varys also makes this clear. He cannot be Tyrion's friend if asked. I am happy to help so long as it doesn't ask me to sacrifice anything, Varys playing the American liberal quite well here. He's a realist. As someone with no real allies and no martial prowess, he can only survive if he's useful to everyone, and he can't be exclusive on that front. His own plans for power, which he has to audible due to Tyrion's decision to patricide, involve him maintaining his station as long as possible, to be near the information and levers of power which will eventually allow him and Illyrio to spring their plan. Both here and when Varys helps Tyrion escape at the end of the book, 
Tyrion criticizes Varys for his lack of loyalty, saying basically, hey, if you work for everyone, that means no one can trust you individually. But what does Varys really owe Tyrion? Same question with Bronn and Shay. Once Tyrion can no longer pay them, what do they actually owe him? Even though Tyrion knows that Shay is in danger by virtue of sucking his cock, he doesn't want to acknowledge that Varys could also endanger himself by sticking too close to Tyrion. It all fits into Tyrion's overall arc in this book, relative to the last book, where he was in charge as Hand of the King, protagonist of the book. Now he is not, and he really, really doesn't want to face the fact that everyone kissing up to him was only doing so because he was in power. And yeah, Varys' shell game is going to be over as soon as young Griff comes into power. Which is good for Varys in that he'll get to stop pretending and hopping on every bandwagon, but it's bad in that he'll have nowhere to hide when things inevitably go wrong. He'll be committed, for better or worse. As the talk goes to balls and brains, I was really struck by the line where Tyrion throws Ned Stark under the bus. If the oh-so-honorable Eddard Stark could sire a bastard, who the fuck cares anymore? <laughs> There's a hidden tragedy in that throwaway rationalization, knowing what Ned's lie is for, of course, but also thinking about how many people justified their own infidelity, lechery, or worse, on the grounds that even Ned Stark wasn't above his basest desires. I don't know, something just icky about Tyrion nearly using Ned's memory as permission to have a concubine, while married to Ned's daughter, of all things. But a concubine would be too much to juggle with Sansa, who Tyrion then blames for betraying her own father, which, I'm sorry, is not the whole of the picture, and I'm not really concerned with Tyrion's assessment of a child, a child whose maidenhead he thinks about a fair amount. Don't worry, though. Tyrion shows us that he's an ally to women by contemplating sending shade to a brothel. Oh, that's lovely. Surely sex workers are treated well at a nice brothel like, Chata like Chataya's, right? Doubt anyone rips babies away from their mothers or use the workers as a hostage in case the king should die in the Blackwater, right? Right? <laughs> All that without Tyrion considering what would happen if anyone recognized a former handmaiden of the Red Keep now earning her pay in a brothel. If nothing else, it would raise questions that could only come back to haunt Tyrion. Really no good options at this point, especially because Tyrion barely even considers what Shay herself might want to do next. In part, that's because he knows deep down that she'll object, just as he knows deep down that he won't be able to let her go in the first place. As miserable as his life is now, his future looks truly bleak to him, without a personal sexual outlet of some kind. He'd feel even colder, like he says, I feel so bloody cold, well, it's, it only gets worse from here. And with that, we ring in the new day, a new year, a new century. I almost feel like the entire cast should come out at this point and start singing One Day More like <laughs> Les Mis, because we're on the verge of everything that's about to go to shit. The chapter ends with a fair share of foreshadowing and irony, Tyrion assuring himself that he can get through the day while Shay calls him a giant of Lannister. But I think I have the same question many readers will at this point. Who the fuck is Sir Talon? <laughs> well, apparently not much of a character so far, though he will be rounded up in the Cerseyquisition of A Feast for Crows, and is currently being held in a dungeon by Kyburn as of A Dance with Dragons. Oh, that's unfortunate. <laughs> no one comes from, no one comes back from that feeling great. <laughs> no one comes back from that at all. I love the the bit in Feast for Crows where uh, Cersei sends one of the Stokeworths down to him and then later is like, oh no, because of because of my inevitable terrible mistakes, I have need of her again. And Kyburn's like, well, unfortunately, she's not <laughs> capable of ruling or feeding herself at this point. And you just go, ugh. You never see what Kyburn's up to, which is, is, is much better. It's much mm -hmm. more effective. 
And yet nothing su- nothing sums up Tyrion quite like him both planning to marry Shay off to Talad and also hating Talad for being such good husband material. And Sir Talad's purpose in the story is right there in his name. He's a tall lad. He's everything Tyrion can't be. Which also describes Jaime, the person Tyrion looks up to, just like how Sansa looks up to Rob, but in his case, that's not going to last much longer. Sansa's half of this episode begins with her dreaming of Winterfell, and Lady, and her family, all alive and well. I imagine really waking up from that dream feels like having your snow castle kicked in by a prepubescent brat, but I'm getting ahead of myself. It's hard not to look forward to Sansa's ladder storm chapters, perhaps foreshadowed by the clouds making little castles in the sky as she opens the shutters. Or maybe it's a reference to Cosette's song from Les Mis, as this is the last morning Sansa will be in the grips of Madame Circe Thénardier, though I dare not call Littlefinger Jean Valjean. <laughs> Just picturing a Stannis as Javert with an, an even worse singing voice than Russell Crowe. <laughs> be beautiful. Putting these two chapters together really lets you see George's POV structure at work. Imagine how different this would be if it was all told from one of their eyes or just from a more detached perspective altogether. Tyrion sees Sansa dreaming and wonders what it's about, but they don't have the kind of intimacy that would allow him to ask. Only the reader gets to find out that Sansa is dreaming of exactly that kind of intimacy. The love and security she knew with her family. Tyrion never knew what that kind of love was like. At least not with anyone besides Jaime, and even that, as we find out, was based on at least one big lie. Tyrion tries to fill that hole inside by filling up Shay's holes, but as we just saw, it isn't working. Which is worse, to know what a loving family is like and then lose it, or to never have known it in the first place? It's like the, you know, it's better to, better to have loved and lost. I remember the great bit in, in Men in Black when Tommy Lee Jones is revealing to Will Smith about how he had to leave his wife behind to be a special agent, and Will Smith is like, well, better to have loved and lost than to have never loved at all. And Tommy Lee Jones just looks at him and goes, try it. That's what I feel like for for Tyrion and Sansa here. I can imagine a world in which Sansa and Tyrion are able to comfort each other, but that's not this world. Even as they gradually get used to each other, like Sansa knowing about Tyrion's morning habits, or most of them anyway, there's too much they have to keep hidden, and there's just no getting over Tyrion's last name. Those clouds smashing together, by the way, are creating a mashup of rose, gold, and crimson, which is about as colorful as purple wedding foreshadowing can get. Sadly, the castle in the sky collapses on itself, and Sansa is rightfully sick thinking about falling castles. Which is interesting, because if that castle represents the Lannisters and the Tyrells coming together as one, Sansa should want that castle to come crashing down. But that's no comfort, because it just reminds her of Winterfell and all her dead relatives, or her supposedly dead in some cases. (laughs) And I think that's George's overall argument about Joffrey's death from the Stark perspective. There is no catharsis in the downfall of your enemies if everything you were fighting for is already gone. Like Sansa after Joffrey's death, when she's she's running away, she thinks, I should be cheering, so why am I crying? I think even more devastating when Arya finally finds out that Joffrey's dead, and she thinks, okay, but so is Rob, so what does it matter? Shay often looks at Sansa with askance, which probably doesn't help my appraisal of Shay's character, though based on her characterization in the book, it does kind of make sense. This is one of those spots where the show pairing the two earlier on in season two I actually think worked well, and the two actors had great rapport with each other. One of the spots where I think the economization of Game of Thrones worked best. Tyrion and Pod show up for a bit of comedy, the former heralding the auspiciousness of the day, of the tricentennial as Westeros turns the calendar to 300 AC, the millennium has three heads apparently. Sansa <laughs> this t- one anyway. Sansa talks sweetly about Pod, who's every bit as scared of her as you'd imagine, given his answers to her feet about his sigil. 
Reminds me a bit of Bran, who would look at Catelyn's feet whenever he lied, though Podrick is only spitting facts. Speaking of the pain sigil, it's purple, gold, and white, colors which can allude to the purple wedding itself, and the gold as coins on the banner may hint at the master businessman behind it all. As for mention of Bran, Sansa repeats a sentiment we just saw in the previous Bran chapter, I must be as strong as Rob. Both now feel the weight of Rob's legacy on them, the very large shadow cast by his brief but meteoric reign as King in the North, as the Stark of Winterfell. It makes me think back to that Catalan chapter at Oldstones, where Rob was contemplating the tomb of Christopher. In a sense, he, he knew this was coming for him. He didn't think it was going to come so soon, but he, he knew it was coming. Rob also has become a legend, a character in the stories and songs. We'll see next episode how the War of Five Kings is being converted into narrative, by the winning side anyway. It also makes me think of what the, the Manderleys say in A Dance with Dragons, that while Manderley says about Rob, he, he was our king, he was brave and good, and they killed him. That's the narrative that's taking shape for them. The martyrdom of the young wolf is inspirational. He's a standard to live up to now, like Bilbo having gone on his own journey before Frodo. Ironically, even though Rob died, his memory helps his siblings survive by gearing up for the challenges ahead of them. Compare that to poor Podrick Payne. No family, no one to rely on. He can't even explain his own heraldry, which I was thinking about. It's so funny that he does such a good job explaining the Dornish banners to Tyrion, but when asked to explain his own sigil, that's where he falls mm -hmm, apart. Mm -hmm. It's also another reminder of the importance of perspective. Sansa feels all alone in the world, a victim of circumstances and fate, and we feel that way because we have her POV. But to Podrick, Sansa is a higher-born woman than he is. He's the wife of his master. She could easily get him in trouble. But Sansa is courteous to both him and Tyrion, nudging her husband along into making himself presentable. Tyrion, of course, is still lost in his shame spiral. George is setting up the reader to expect Tyrion to cause trouble, when, other than a couple moments, he actually handles Joffrey pretty well in the next chapter. It's just the relationship is, is already way too poisoned. Remarkably well, even, because when I get drunk, I get worse at handling problematic relationships, <laughs> and Tyrion somehow Same. gets better. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> if only he was more drunk. <laughs> So Sansa, like any good white woman, attends brunch in the Queen's Ballroom, <laughs> which would be a great name for a brunch place. I'm thinking Southern Comfort Fair. Give me those grits. And honestly, there may be grits here, given how pretty much every other food under the sun appears to be served this day. There is a clear class component to this, or at least the projection of one. From the Lannister point of view, the war is essentially over. Now the Lannisters have to project that victory, much like they did with the little dog and pony show after the Blackwater in which Tywin was named Hand and Marjorie betrothed to Joff in Sansa's stead. And one way for the Lannisters to project power is to drown the royal wedding in food, even if it is on the Tyrell dime. One of the most immediate and critical consequences of war is food shortages, as we saw in A Clash of Kings with the bread riots in the capital. So to signal the end of war, of a return to quote-unquote normalcy, is to be like, look, we all have food again, and it's all going great. This feast will also stand out in comparison to the last two chapters up at the Wall, where Bran and company have to hunt for what meager food they can, or the limited provisions Jon Snow and the Watch have to work with as they fend off the wildlings. Of course, I wonder how the people not inside the walls of the Red Keep are eating. Assuredly better than before, but doubtful as well as the nobles. My main concern, though, is how many Scoville units there are in Dragon Peppers from Dorne. Please add a million of those to my grits. 
Tyrion japes about such a lavish brunch ahead of an even more lavish dinner, which reminds me of my uh, college days, where once me and my pals tried to go to Red Lobster, put our names in for the 55-minute wait, and then decided to pre-game Red Lobster with some Wendy's. The $50 barely-eaten-surf-and-turf dinners when our server brought us our check told the story, though thankfully no one died of poisoning afterwards. Close call. What's the, what's the go-to Wendy's order? Which, oh, back then was when right uh, yeah. 99 cents still got you something. So I would do oh, uh, like two, days. two junior bacon cheeseburgers and two five-piece nuggets and then maybe a Frosty or a drink on the side. Mm, perfect. Who needs surf and turf? That's a meal right there. And yeah, all that all that food, all that food in this in this uh, breakfast here in the Queen's Ballroom, and no one's even enjoying it. Or at least our main characters aren't, which gives the reader the impression of just a huge waste. The point of this excess, like you said, is to symbolize Lannister victory. We can afford to do this. They're not partying like this at River Run or Dragonstone these days. I mean, they never were at Dragonstone, <laughs> but you get the point. But here are Tyrion and Sansa, whose marriage is also a sign of Lannister victory, and they're not even enjoying the literal fruits of success. Another sign that this whole wedding is overcompensating for the weaknesses lurking stubbornly underneath. Yeah, it's noteworthy on Riri that the Dornish peppers are too spicy, because Oberyn isn't going to fit into this image of peace and plenty. He's not going to let you just uh, swallow him down smoothly, so to speak. Yeah, and Tywin will have a big tummy ache from all this at the end of it, right? <laughs> he sure will. <laughs> Tyrion, meanwhile, seems to be on a quest to poison himself via alcohol, skimping on the food and going heavy on the booze. Between Tywin, his child wife, Martells and Tyrells, and General Chumfuckery, it has been a cromulent fruct-crustable of a day for Tyrion. <laughs> he needs drinky. And for anyone who does not understand that reference, God bless you. You are living a better life. Sansa herself is preoccupied with the horrible realization that they have made her a Lannister, an identity forced upon her, which itself teases the Elaine persona she'll have to carry with her into the veil. It's a very cathartic moment in a chapter where Sansa is mostly restraining herself. Just for a second, she lets herself be angry. In George's initial pitch letter, Sansa genuinely joins the Lannister side, heart and soul. Here, George is reflecting on the gap between that character and the one he ended up writing. Sansa is still stark on the inside, but to the outside world, she looks like her initial character conception. She looks like a Lannister. And in a world where no one listens to or even seems to care about her inner life, maybe that's all that matters. The wife cloak is presented to Joffrey by his mother Cersei, heralding its usage by both Lord Tywin and King Robert in their marriages. You know, Tywin and Robert, the most upstanding husbands and fathers in the Seven Kingdoms. Certainly my role models, I don't know what you're talking about. Sansa notes how threadbare it is, which also becomes a symbol for Lannister rule. Still majestic from a distance, but on closer inspection, you can see the material is worn down and about to fray. I think there's also a joke in there about how Joffrey's Lannister on both sides. Like, he's, he's just using up all the genes. There's barely <laughs> any left. And I just love that they're not even pretending that Joffrey is a Baratheon anymore. They're just, they're just so far past that now that, uh, that Renly is dead and Stannis is, is practically dead. And that's part of what makes the, the, the song Lord Renly's Ride during the feast so funny. The idea that, like, Renly repented and came back to save Joffrey, which is it's just very, very funny. But also, that's politically genius, because that, like, paper's over it. Joffrey's kind of a Baratheon and kind of not. Don't think about it too hard, because all the real Baratheons are dead. I couldn't come up with a take on the rest of Joffrey's gifts. I was too busy counting the words from when Sansa thinks, oh, Joffrey's playing the gracious king today, to when he just starts casually throwing out some rape jokes about getting with Sansa and all that. Maybe 20 words? Not much more than that, though. 
Tyrion gets some backing from his uncle Kevin about his gift of the book to Joffrey, but for the most part, the attendants laugh with Joffrey's crude japes. Tyrion, I guess, gets the crown for being gracious here, simply swallowing his words with wine, as Sansa observes. Most of the gifts are pretty standard, just toys for playing at war. Again, like Joffrey needs more of those. I love that Joffrey, when he talks about a Paxter Redwine's ship, I love that Joffrey honestly thinks Tywin is going to let him personally sail to Dragonstone to finish <laughs> off Stannis. No, Joffrey, you are, you, are, you are all kinds of an indoor cat from now on, especially after the Blackwater. You, you think that's going to happen? Uh, the one gift that stands out to me besides Tyrion's book and Mace Tyrell's human-sized cup is, uh, is Oberyn's uh, scorpion brooch. When Oberyn visits Tyrion in his cell, Oberyn tells a story about how Dornish rebels used scorpions to kill a Tyrell lord sent to occupy Dorne. So Oberyn's gift is also a threat. And as we'll also see in that scene in Tyrion's cell, George is using Oberyn as a red herring, or a red scorpion, hinting that he might have killed Joffrey before revealing it was Elena, which is something I'm watching for this time through, is, is all the, the red herrings for who actually did the Purple Wedding. Because of course, the Red Wedding, we see Bruce Bolton do it right there. <laughs> we see Walder Frey laughing. But the Purple Wedding, George teases us for a bit before he reveals it. And he gives us, he gives us a lot of different false paths to go down before, before pulling it off. Yeah, I'm just also realizing that Tom gives Shiv a scorpion right before uh, or near the end of Secession Season 4, right? And their relationship kind of goes to shit, even though they kind of hold on together. It's true. Leading to one of my favorite lines in Succession when Shiv says, Hi, Tom, here's a snake as a necktie. Why aren't you laughing? <laughs> uh, Oberyn should have a uh, snake uh, necktie. I think that would I be appropriate that. for his outfit. <laughs> Joffrey, like we mentioned back in Tyrion 6, is being dialed up to 11 right now because we have so little time with him. Sansa even gives us a previously on moment by recalling Joff's previous swords, like Lion's Tooth and Heart Eater, so we can flag how far we've come with this despicable character. Sometimes Joffrey is casually cruel, but here he is very deliberate and pointed about it, especially when talking about chipping away the wolf on his new chalice as gifted by Mace Tyrell. Sansa really does have her Stannis impersonation down, pretending not to hear any of Joffrey's provocations. She and Tyrion share a brief moment wishing ill on Joffrey. Maybe this is the most intimate moment between the two. It's what they have in common, which is exactly why everyone thinks that they, the one of them or the two of them killed Joffrey, because who has a stronger motive? Coming back to that bit with the cup on reread, it's also interesting that Joffrey thinks the Ironborn are going to permanently hold on to the North. That's what he's implying by saying put a squid in its place. He doesn't know about Tywin's plan to give it to Tyrion and Sansa's kids. Then again, maybe I'm giving Joffrey too much credit with the whole thinking idea. <laughs> he's not thinking that far ahead. He's just trying to hurt Sansa any way he can now that she is not officially his plaything anymore. And it makes for a great metaphor of how Joffrey looks at his realm. That it, They're just nothing but these shiny objects on his new toys. Nothing but... Things he can hurt people with, just like his new sword. Yeah, the chapter pivots on Widow's Whale, a perfectly misogynistic name to match its wielder. Valyrian Steel, as we know, coming from Ned Stark's ice, just to heighten how much we hate everything about what's happening here. He slices up Tyrion's history book, much to the chagrin of Sir Garland Tyrell. I can see why Emmett is so taken with him. But as Joff <laughs> slices up the work, Tyrion keys in on Joffrey's admission about being familiar with Valyrian Steel. We'll get to this shortly. But first, we get to the Dornish, Sansa eyeing Illyria with great curiosity. In a way, Illyria stands as a challenge to the societal norms Sansa's had enforced on her and at times been embraced by her, especially those surrounding the ladies of the court. 
Sansa's observation about Illyria not being beautiful but still drawing the eye reminds me of the John Updike short story A&P, where a teen grocery clerk ogles some young women shopping at the store, conflating his sexual urges with consumerism, as embodied by the products on the shelf, referring to the girl's breasts as cans, for example, turning his desire into a product of consumption. Anywho, Sammy notes the lead woman, Queenie as he calls her, is more striking than beautiful. I don't think that has much to do with what's happening to Sansa, but it's a short story I always wanted to recommend to people, so here I am recommending it on the Not A Cast podcast. It's an interesting little moment, especially because Sansa remembers Shay admiring Ilaria like a role model. You can almost see the light bulb going off above Shay's head. If Ilaria was, quote, almost a whore and then rose high by Oberyn's side, well, why couldn't Shay do the same? Maybe with Tyrion. Many reasons why, unfortunately. <laughs> Dorne works differently from the rest of Westeros with regards to bastards, sex work, and gender and sexuality in general. Oberyn is also more popular than Tyrion, and more intimidating. If he wants Ilaria at his side, no one is going to tell the Red Viper no. The only person who could ever really stop him is his big brother. But Duran always seems to have looked on Oberyn's indiscretions with fondness or exasperation at worst. Compare that to Tyrion's family, who would never, for one second, let him live publicly with Shay. Plus, of course, Oberyn never got married, whereas Tyrion did. Shay originally didn't care about Tyrion getting married. She said, ah, you'll give her a big belly and then come back to me. But Shay is starting to realize that Sansa is an obstacle to her upward mobility. Hence the resentful looks, the sense that eh, maybe this town isn't big enough for the two of them. Sansa is looking at Alaria from the opposite perspective, as that of a noble-born woman married off to a noble-born man. You can see Sansa struggling to understand. On one hand, she dismisses Ilaria as not beautiful, because Sansa's beauty standards are different, built around the idea that a woman ought to look like, say, Cersei. But here's Ilaria, who, as Sansa thinks, looks Cersei straight in the eye. Olenna called Ilaria the serpent's whore, and here you can see Sansa struggling to move away from that perspective, looking at Ilaria with curiosity, George writes, rather than contempt. It's an interesting intersection between class and gender. And like you said earlier, we're seeing George set up Sansa to become Elaine, bastard-born herself. She's got to get used to looking people in the eye even when she feels socially like she might not be supposed to. Oberyn and Tyrion's half of the exchange is equally fun, almost a meta-commentary on George's writing style, as the two well-read characters debate the contents of the book Joffrey hacked apart, Lives of the Four Kings, as well as the biases or ignorances of its author. A matter of perspective, which one can say describes the organizing structure of A Song of Ice and Fire and its point of view structure. Exactly. They're they're looking back on history with different ideas of not only what happened, but what's important, what it all means, relating to different characters. And that's how we read A Song of Ice and Fire. And that's how the characters within A Song of Ice and Fire process their history, recent history as well as ancient. Oberyn thinks Viserys II was a footnote in Targaryen history. Eh, He barely ruled a year, he killed his nephew to get the throne and did nothing with it. For Tyrion, Viserys II is a pivot point in Targaryen history. He was the one who was actually ruling while his nephews frittered away their power. Both have a point, although Tyrion seems to have the stronger one. You get the feeling that Oberyn was a dilettante at the Citadel like he was everywhere else, (laughs) mostly reading this book for the pictures that he mentions, and surprised that Grand Maester Caeth paid any attention to Viserys at all. Oberyn is focused purely on who was actively sitting the Iron Throne, not considering that someone had to be running the government while Daron failed to conquer Dorne and Baylor spent his days and nights praying. That's ironic because Oberyn is here for revenge on Tywin, who wouldn't appear on any list of kings but has still dominated Westerosi politics. 
And maybe Oberyn is, is, is kind of thinking of himself here that, you know, he's, he's gone out and lived a life like, like Daron the Young Dragon. And Daron, although he was the, the elder child already in, in, uh, in charge of Dorne, he was the one left behind to kind of rule like Viserys II. Now, that doesn't mean Tyrion is a more objective observer of history. It's easy to guess that Tyrion is projecting himself into Viserys II, so that Tyrion is the one who kept the Lannister regime together as hand, while Joffrey was the one wearing the crown. Once again, Tyrion and Tywin have more in common than either of them want to admit, that there's a great setup here that Tywin was the unappreciated hand of the Mad King Eris, and then Tyrion was the unappreciated hand of the Mad King Joffrey. And then there's Sansa, who still has one foot in the songs and stories of her childhood. And I get the feeling Viserys II didn't figure into those at all. There was nothing romantic or exciting about his life, even in the distorted view of the Bard's truth. Instead, she's thinking about his nephew Baylor when he comes up in conversation. You may know him better as Baylor the Blessed, the guy whose statue was watching as Ned was beheaded. He has a very mixed reputation as a king, which makes him an ideal subject for the question of how perspective changes history. Sansa was told Baylor was a great king because he was saintly. He martyred himself, sacrificed himself for peace with Dorne and the safety of his fabled cousin, Aemon the Dragon Knight. He was so holy the snakes didn't bite him. Even nature thought he was great. Regardless of whether or not the snakes bit him as he did it, and I think Alaria's probably right, he was bit quite a bit, I think the more interesting question is, what does that have to do with being king? Is being king about big, transformative moments that filter down into fairy tales? Or are those mostly just spectacles to distract the crowd while the butchers and the browbeaten bookkeepers of the world do the actual work of ruling? I think you can see George arguing here that it's both, that history is about understanding the relationship between individual decisions and larger patterns. On one hand, Baylor was an absentee king when it came to the nuts and bolts of governing, which is why Viserys II was really in charge. It's easy to overstate the importance of the big gesture, the great man who changes history. Sansa was lied to about Baylor. The snakes bit him like they'd bite anyone else. The implication being that there's a whole worldview built on that kind of lie, one that discounts a bureaucrat in the shadows like Viserys II, or Tyrion, or Varys, and pretends that Baylor was just chosen by the gods to be different. On the other hand, individual decisions can still reshape the course of history. What if the Dragon Knight had died in Dorne? Would that have changed how Aegon IV looked at Nerys and Daron? Maybe. Maybe not. Sansa has been told a childish version of history. Oberyn has read the more adult versions, but he has done so superficially. Tyrion has gone the farthest, although he still has plenty of his own blind spots. George is using all of them to say, you have to look under the hood. You have to question what you read and consider the contingencies, and he follows up on that thread, of course, with Fire and Blood and House of the Dragon. Then we get the punchline for this scene specifically. Oberyn saying, well, there's no snake venom to blame for Joffrey being the way he is, so how are we going to conveniently cover that up? It's Oberyn's way of saying that Joffrey isn't Dorne's problem. He's the Lannister's problem, as Tywin has only too late begun to realize. Joffrey destroying the book is, of course, a blunt metaphor for his own incuriosity. He doesn't care about the kings who have gone before him because he's not trying to be a good king. To him, being king is doing things like cutting up books. But on this read, it also felt like George showing us the limits of history and knowledge in the face of power. What does it matter that Kaith wrote this book and that Tyrion and Oberyn studied it and came away with their conclusions if the reality is that this little monster is in charge and there's nothing they can do about it? Who cares which one of them is right about Viserys II when Viserys II is ash and dust while Joffrey is flesh and blood? Or in other words, what happens when you realize that the pen is not mightier than the sword at all? Tyrion 7 started with Tyrion dressing in darkness. Sansa 4 ends with him shrouding himself in it, insofar as he orders the curtains closed on his and Sansa's litter. He's half in thought, half poking at Sansa with questions about Joffrey's relationship to her brothers as he pieces together the dragonbone dagger information in his mind. 
I swear we'll get to the dr- dagger reveal in a second, but I am tickled by the mention of Theon Greyjoy here in light of the pitch letter. Theon basically took the role Tyrion was meant to play of sacking Winterfell, so this is an almost an acknowledgement of sorts of a path not taken by George. Kind of similar to what Emmett was saying about Sansa, what she was supposed to be in the pitch letter versus what she actually is in his story. Of course, Theon, quote-unquote, killing Bran, prevents Tyrion from theoretically asking Bran how he fell and if he had any issues with Joffrey. Maybe they'll chat about it in the endgame if they have a fireside chat like they did in Season 8, Episode 2, Night of the Seven Kingdoms. Yeah, we've gone full circle. Back to these two alone with each other, facing the impossibility of there ever being honesty or trust between them. It pulls all the larger issues back down to an intimate level. Like, uh, pull yourself out of these POVs and just, like, think about it in terms of, here's a man who is investigating an attack on his wife's brother, and he thinks he knows who is responsible, someone that both he and his wife despise. You look at that in isolation, seems like, yeah, naturally, you're going to be working together on this, right? But Tyrion can't bring himself to tell Sansa the truth, what he discovered, because of the history between their families. Like he said, Catelyn once accused him of this. And she can only see him as trying to lead her into a trap get her to say something nice about her family so she'll be revealed as a traitor. That Tyrion isn't doing that and wouldn't do that is irrelevant, because unlike us, Sansa has no way into Tyrion's head, and she has very good reason not to trust her Lannister captors ever again. She trusted Joffrey, she trusted Cersei. How'd that work out? So the potential to bond passes by like all the rest. The irony is that the only lasting effect of their marriage is that everyone assumes they were in on this together. (laughs) Only Tyrion, Sansa, and the Reader know better. I guess Littlefinger, but I don't like to count Littlefinger for anything. (laughs) So moving on into a foreshadowing and groundwork. Tyrion is crawling through the tunnels here to visit Shay, something he'll be doing again at the end of the book, crawling back into those tunnels to escape the castle. And once again, he will find Shay, but doesn't go as well, to put it lightly. And he says in this chapter that Tywin will hang her if he ever finds her. But as it works out, Tywin does find her, and Tyrion is the only one who ends up not hanging her, but strangling her with the hand chain, which is close enough to hanging, I think, for symbolic purposes. Yeah, I just don't cut anything on this. <laughs> it's just, it's just brutal, brutal what's going to come. <laughs> as much as I love that last Tyrion chapter, there's there are parts of it that are almost just like analysis proof because it's just horrible emotions being sprayed at you like from a fire hose. You just you just kind of got to take it. Yeah. So for theory and discussion, you know we were going to do it. You know we'd come back to it. This chapter is, is one of the, the main uh, chapters when it comes to the mystery of what happened with that, that dagger at Winterfell, something we've talked about before. And we kind of get, and we finally get the reveal here and over the course of next Tyrion chapter, the next Jamie chapter, that it was Joffrey. Whoop-de-doo. Yeah, I think whoop-de-doo is how I feel about this. And I know you guys have talked about it before on this podcast. It's a reveal that, you know, makes sense for me. Mm-hmm. Um, I especially think it works as something for Th- Tyrion himself to linger on during these course of the chapters. So it almost serves that more than it serves anything ter- in terms of the bigger machinations of A Song of Ice and Fire. Um, I find it's just not the most deftly dropped of George's reveals. Um, but it's also one of those things where he kind of has to drop it here because after Joffrey's death, I really don't think it matters if we find out about this piece of information. <laughs> and I do like the one thing I do like about it is just kind of the affirmation of Jer- uh, Jersey, Jamie and Cersei's characters in this. Mm-hmm. And when Tyrion's like, well, Jamie wouldn't send someone else to kill someone and Cersei would only send Jamie. Like those kind of things, you know, help make sense. Um, you know, they help buoy some other characters. But I think the ultimate reason this reveal just kind of falls short is that it doesn't really tell me anything new about Joffrey or anyone else really involved in this. All it's really doing is just kind of 
checking a box and answering a question we had, kind of wrapping up a lot of the Act 1 mysteries just because we're going to move on to a new part of the story. And we see George do this a lot more effectively, I think, in Sansa's last chapter, where we find out the reveal of John Aaron's death. That is a great point. And that is that is how I think about this reveal is it's in comparison to that one, because I love that moment at the end of Sansa's last chapter in Storm. When you find out, when your mind is blown at the back of your head the first time you read it, that John Aaron's death, which is not set up as a mystery at all, and something you assumed was was obvious from the get-go. Of course, it's the Lannisters. We were told it's the Lannisters. Lannisters are the enemy. John Aaron was our buddy. They killed him. Let's go get him. And then we get the reveal of his Lysa. That's so great, uh, not just because it, it kind of rips the guts out of the whole story structure of the lore and completely makes you understand differently how this thing even started, but it's great because it, in that moment, completely explains Lysa as a character who we don't actually get that much time with and then who dies like sentences later. <laughs> so that's it. And that, you know, it, it, I remember just being so taken aback with that chapter the first time because it, it opened my mind to the what this woman was capable of, but also just what had happened to her. And then she's gone and Littlefinger is some, suddenly so much worse than he was before. And just none of that is here <laughs> with, with Joffrey and the dagger and Bran. Like you say, it's just Joffrey... The psychology is not there to explore on the same level as someone like Littlefinger. And because of that, there's no... Joffrey doesn't. Ne- Joffrey never gets old enough to manipulate someone. That capability for understanding how that kind of psychological abuse is done is just not present. You can see him starting to learn, maybe towards the end of his life, he's starting to learn how to, how to target his victims' minds as well as their bodies, but not, not, not yet. So there's just, yeah, there's not, there's not much to, to gain about him there. It is interesting, uh, you know, what the, how, what the show didn't rant with this. That might have been part of an original intention for it, especially since the 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 fabled prophecy of the dagger <laughs> comes up <laughs> in House of the Dragon as well. It is funny if Bran ends up king at the end that Joffrey was unknowingly sending someone, sending an assassin for someone who's going to take his throne. That is funny, but yeah, without without that, it lacks the punch of of something like Lysa kill John Aaron, which is that's a holy shit moment. We'll have a lot more fun with uh, when we get to it down the line. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's it. Like, we already know Joffrey's cruel and stupid, and this just doesn't really, like, tell us anything more. And, you know, comparing it to that Sansa reveal, um, A, you know, it's kind of the missing piece to the Liza Aaron character, like you said. B, it has us really rethink what we thought about Littlefinger, because I think the scope of his villainy or antagonism in the story just kind of blows up exponentially just from that singular reveal. And it also puts a very interesting piece of information in Sansa's lap um, that George can do whatever he wants to in the end game of the story. So like, even though that's a big reveal in itself, it sets up more stuff down the road. Whereas this one really just feels like the end of the road of a mystery. And you know, that's that. And we can move on to more important things and the second act of the story and all that stuff. Exactly. And he, and he didn't, he didn't, he doesn't fool us with the dagger, which I also mm-hmm. like about Lysa killing John Aaron is that we assume it's the Lannisters because we hate the Lannisters and they seem to have plenty of reason to do it. So, and it, and it's, it's great to go back and realize, oh, we're never actually, Cersei never actually confirms to Tyrion that that happened. Tyrion just kind of assumes that she killed John Aaron. Pycelle assumes that she was poisoning John Aaron, but she never confirms it. So it's, it's well built in that way. So. This is just our stealth way of getting into our, our Sansa 7 episode. It's just just starting in the in the background here. So that is going to wrap us up for our episode on A Storm of Swords, Tyrion 7, and Sansa 4. Thank you so much for listening. As always, if you want to drop a rating or review for us on your podcast app of choice, we really appreciate that. Helps us find new listeners. You can check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F, where our patrons uh, get benefits including exclusive episodes every month and early access to our regular episodes. 
You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram and Blue Sky at Nauticast, A-S-O-I-A-F, or shoot us an email at Nauticast, A-S-O-I-A-F, at gmail.com. And you can find me at Poor Quentin on Twitter and Blue Sky. And you can find me at Nuclear Bomb on Twitter and Blue Sky as well. So, next up in A Song of Ice and Fire, The Purple Wedding is going to keep on rolling. Keep on rolling with Purple Wedding Month with A Storm of Swords, Tyrion 8, in which Joffrey finally, finally dies. R.I.P., you will be missed, if literally only by your mom. Uh, I'm going to have to, like, stare into a mirror for 30 minutes before the episode and just keep telling myself, I will not celebrate a dead child. I will not celebrate a dead child. I will not celebrate a dead child. The finest child who ever lived, as Pycelle says. Don't worry, we'll get a chance to closer examine his body in the follow-up JV chapter that comes a little bit after. Exactly. Good times. Good, good, sad, fucked up times. <laughs> Elsewhere, my uh, latest Star Wars episode is out for all five dollars above patrons. Fifth one on New Hope, finally getting everyone together on the Death Star to try to uh, pull off a princess heist. For next up for patrons will be my final Lord of the Rings episode, wrapping it up with book six, chapter nine, The Grey Haven. Sadly, all things, even somehow the Lord of the Rings eventually come to an end. <laughs> and I'll be talking that episode about what's going to be occupying uh, that slot of our schedule going forward. So tune into that if you're one of our patrons and check out our Patreon if, uh, if you're not. And uh, yeah, thanks again for listening. And we'll see you next time in A Song of Ice and Fire for A Storm of Swords, Tyrion 8.